welcome to the Beer Makes History podcast presented by Yield Tavern Tours. This 10-episode series explores Boston during the American Revolution and beer's role in all of it. I'm Brooke, one of your hosts. I have a PhD in American history, I founded Yield Tavern Tours, and I'm an author and beer lover. In each episode, we pair a beer with our history, and that's where my co-host comes in. I'm Kristen. I'm a PhD student in history, a tour guide for Yield Tavern Tours, and I'll be talking about the beer pairings in each episode, which means I'll be drinking a lot for research. So join us as beer makes history. Thanks for joining us for episode five. Today on the podcast, we're talking about Boston from 1768 to 1770 and what it's like when British soldiers come to Boston. Here's a hint. It's tense. We're going to turn to Kristen first, though, so we can start drinking. This episode's beer is Castle Island Keeper. The Keeper is a new age, New England IPA. I'll explain what that means in a second. That comes in at 6.5% ABV. Unlike our last couple of small batch brews that have come in a bottle, this one is in a 16-ounce can. Yes. So we don't have to get pouring. We just got to get cracking. Yeah. We've got our Yule Tavern Tours koozies also to keep it nice and cold. So here we're going to crack it open. Such a good sound. We want to thank Castle Island Brewing Company as we're starting our tasting here for sending us these beers. And Kristen, I have to confess, I've had this beer before and I like it. So I'm I'm thrilled with our choice. But you always teach me new things. So tell me about this beer. We'll see. I need a taste first. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Huzzah! Huzzah! It's a good one. You have to have a good huzzah with a huzzah Mm -hmm. cuisine. Ooh. I like this one. I get a lot of juicy... I'm nodding beer. enthusiastically <laughs> looking at Kristen. It's like, I'm like, yeah, it's really good, isn't it? It's weird <laughs> when people say this with beers, but I really get like a juicy peach when I first taste this beer, which is not what you normally get. IPAs tend to be more citrus fruity, which I think I can get a little more of those notes when I swirl it around in my mouth a little bit, which I'll do now. It doesn't taste like 6.5%. I'll, I'll say that for sure. It's an IPA, but... Sometimes IPAs get too crazy for me personally, and this one's really drinkable. It's really smooth. Like I said, it's it's got those juicy flavors that help balance out the bitter that you can often get with IPAs, which actually brings us to what I want to talk about with beer today. Perfect. Um, the Castle Island Brewery calls this a New Age IPA, but that is really a New England IPA. Mm. So we need to back up just a little bit and talk about the debate between East Coast and West Coast styles of IPA. I'm, (laughs) it's funny because I'm originally from California, but I've lived in California for about as long as I've lived in Boston. So San Diego and Boston. So I'm kind of West Coast, East Coast gal. So I'm going to stay neutral on this. You're an expert on both (laughs) of these types of beer. I grew up in Western Montana, which is much more associated with the West Coast style. Right. So the beers that I grew up drinking, not grew up. (laughs) after 21 started drinking, um, tended to be West Coast styles, which is not the original beer because original IPAs were from England, right? India Pale Ale is what IPA stands for. And when the English 
came over to the American colonies, they brought over their beer recipe. All makes sense. So the East Coast style of IPA is really well balanced. It has a bit of malt sweetness, a lot of these fruit flavors that I just pointed out, but I call these beers inoffensive. Um, (laughs) They don't have, you know, nothing's really going to stick out and be like, oh, what is that? You know, I don't like that. Whereas a lot of people that try West Coast styles can have that feeling because West Coast IPAs use a lot of hops Mm. and they're very bitter, primarily because a lot of the hop farms in America were on the West Coast. So when California brewers who were central to the craft beer revival started making all these craft beers and IPAs, they just had this abundant resource and used them. (laughs) So obviously different regions started to branch off with their own styles as the craft beer craze took off in the last 20 or so years and New England was no exception. It all started with this beer called Hetty Topper from Alchemist Brewery in Vermont in 2003. The beer maker did something a little weird with this beer. He made the IPA unfiltered. So previously, an unfiltered IPA would have been considered a fault, a bad beer, but the beer maker did this on purpose and then aggressively dry hopped it. So you kind of get this mix between East Coast, West Coast um, style IPAs Mm. because you get some of that bitterness, particularly on the finish, but they aim for those big juicy flavors and big aromas like what hit me when I first tried this Castle Island Keeper. So it's a nice, you know, happy medium for people that want a little bit more hops, a little bit more mouthfeel, but maybe not to the extent of a West Coast. If you go to craft beer shops like Craft Beer Cellar now, you see a lot of these 16 ounce Mm -hmm. cans, but typically that would have indicated that the beer was a New England style IPA. So I'm excited that we're being very Boston, very (laughs) New England with our choice today. So I'm gonna take a sip and why don't you tell us what you're excited about? Yeah, so Castle Island Brewing Company was the perfect choice for today because we're gonna talk about literally Castle Island, which is a place that features prominently in this episode, which is fun. And then I also love this episode because Bostonians really show how creative they are, both in following the letter of the law, which seems very unlike Boston's (laughs) to date, but also the way they help their fellow townspeople. So we're excited to take you through. We left off our last episode with Governor Francis Bernard struggling to keep control of Boston after the riots in defense of John Hancock. Gotta get that wine. (laughs) And you wouldn't believe Bernard's solution. Okay, He thought that armed soldiers could help restore order and enforce the township duties. I know, you're LOLing. It's ridiculous. Uh, Armed soldiers. (laughs) He wrote to the Crown and implied that troops were necessary in Boston, but he didn't come outright and request them. He reminded the Crown about the, quote, defenseless state of this government, end quote, but he said he'd, quote, leave it to the administration to determine upon measures which they are much more able to judge, end quote. So Bernard wants the soldiers in Boston. He's reminding them that the government is without order, but he's leaving it to Parliament to decide so they could look like the bad guys who ordered troops to occupy a town during peacetime. He's such a weasel. Yeah, definitely a weasel. I'm not sure that this is going to work. I think that (laughs) the people in Boston are going to realize what's going on. Good thought. So the Crown agreed with Bernard, luckily for him, and decided to send soldiers to Boston. 1,200 troops arrived on October 1st, 1768. The soldiers made a big show of their military might when they landed at Boston's Long Wharf. The troops marched up King Street, which was really the main street in Boston, and they beat their drums and had bayonets fixed on their muskets. Cannons from several warships pointed at the town from the harbor. 
You can imagine that this behavior is more typical of entering a hostile town or fighting a battle than occupying a peaceful town with fellow British subjects. Worse, nearly 800 more soldiers arrived in November, bringing the total number of British soldiers in Boston to 2,000. As a reminder, this is a town of 15,500 people, which only includes 3,000 adult men. So with the arrival of the troops, the adult male population of Boston, this small town, increased by more than 60% in one month. Wow, that's a lot of testosterone. It is. And the best case scenario would be Boston greeting the soldiers indifferently. That's best case, Kristen. (laughs) The worst case, well, we know Bostonians have a lot of potential to make trouble, Mm -hmm. which they do. Now, I'm sure that some British officials and loyalists in Boston may have found the soldiers a welcome sight, but most colonists throughout North America feared a standing army. In 1768, colonies didn't have an army. They relied on and trusted on the militia to fight when necessary. It's really hard to imagine this today, but it's a really important point to know about Bostonians in 1768. Today, we have a massive standing army and an enormous military complex, but 250 years ago, standing armies, that is permanent armies, were seen as dangerous because they could subject citizens to military rule. Samuel Adams argued that, quote, the raising and keeping a standing army within the kingdom in a time of peace is against law. Samuel Adams is our key player today. He, I'm he, excited. You are. He's an interesting character. So he is our key player. So let's give him a little love. At this time in 1768, he's 46 years old and he's a Boston native. He's heavily influenced by the town's religion, history, and the charter under which Massachusetts is governed. Sounds okay so far. Uh, yeah. I'm not a fan of the Adams cousins, Samuel or John, if that isn't totally clear, but uh, it will become clear soon. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So uh, Samuel Adams admired his ancestors for bravely settling Massachusetts with no help from their mother country. And this becomes really important in the late 1760s and 1770s when he's arguing against parliament. He said, listen, we've been running ourselves for a long time. He's a strict congregationalist. He even sang in his church's choir, which is probably not what you would think of. Choir boy. But he wasn't easy to be around. He was very dismissive and judgmental of people who didn't share his political or religious values. For example, he frequently criticized John Hancock for his vanity, which wasn't totally without (laughs) merit, but... We uh, like Hancock. Yeah. (laughs) He also criticized Catholics for their commitment to a pope. Yeah, super judgy. Uh, He didn't do himself any favors either in the personal appearance department. He put in exactly zero effort to dress well, which is the exact opposite of Hancock. He might have been jealous. (laughs) Adams was so slovenly that his friends... Okay, this is so wild. It's true. It's one of those, like, stranger-than-fiction stories. His friends actually staged an intervention in 1774 to clean his wardrobe up. I love this. It's like what not to wear colonial edition Yeah, he's, mixed with that intervention show. Yeah, he's the star of the show. It got so bad, his clothing and his personal appearance, that Bostonians chipped in to buy him a new wardrobe, including a new wig, can't have a ratty wig, Mm-mm. hat, suit, and shoes. Uh, so he didn't embarrass himself or all of Massachusetts in these important political meetings. And not to pile on here, but I'm going to, uh, Adams wasn't particularly handsome. <laughs> I'm so mean, but it's true. He's not particularly handsome. He's got this large head and a squat body. And John Singleton Copley is the one who paints Adams, and Copley doesn't do him any favors either. So uh, we're getting that from Copley. 
Adams did go to the finest schools that Boston had to offer, Boston Latin School and then Harvard College, but he didn't have a sharp business mind. After his father died, Samuel was supposed to take over the family's businesses, but those businesses eventually failed under his lack of leadership. Adams also served as, and failed as, a tax collector. Which is really ironic that he was once a tax collector because he hates taxes. I know. It doesn't fit his brand. (laughs) But he actually, in fairness, he took pity on those who couldn't pay their taxes and released them from their financial obligations. So he wasn't a hardcore tax collector, which made him popular as a collector, but really bad at his job. I can see that. He can collect my taxes if he wants to today. <laughs> now, the only place where Samuel Adams did seem useful, which in hindsight is more than enough, was in politics. He masterfully exploited the power of the press by writing newspaper articles criticizing Parliament. Although he rarely drank alcohol. Wait, what? Yeah. He's a slob <laughs> yep. and a sober one, and yep. not at all what we think of Sam Adams, given yeah. that in our time period, there's a beer with his name on it. A judgy, sober <laughs> slob. I mean, it's it's just great. It's a great combo. Oh, I'm going to have a drink. Uh, okay. <laughs> Cheers to you, Sammy. <laughs> so he hardly drank alcohol, which you likely don't expect. But this is really important. He did frequent Boston's taverns because he often had something to add to the political debates going on there. We talked in a much earlier episode about how important taverns were to political life in colonial North America, but especially in Boston. Beer makes history. Yes. Yes. <laughs> the arrival of the British troops then would be an easy cause for him to get tavern goers to rally around, especially because ew, the soldiers need to quarter in Boston. Speaking of drinking in taverns, this is the perfect time to take a quick break. We'll talk about how and where the soldiers will stay when we come back. <laughs> If you're like us and you love history and beer, join Yule Tavern Tours when you're in Boston. We see many of the historic sites mentioned in this podcast and we drink beer at historic taverns along the way. Whether you're native to Boston or visiting for the first time, you'll learn something new and have so much fun doing it. So we've got these British soldiers and they need to stay in Boston, but they could not stay in private homes. Really? I thought it was a given that soldiers stayed in private homes. Why do I think that? Yeah, I mean, it's a really common misconception, but actually the Quartering Act of 1765, excuse me, said that soldiers were required to first occupy any available barracks or public buildings. And interesting side note, the Quartering Act of 1765 is one of Parliament's most successful taxes at this time because colonists had to pay for their privacy. That if soldiers didn't stay in the homes, you had to pay for their provisions. Mm -hmm. So you had to pay for the rum or the candles (laughs) of these soldiers. It's funny how if you pass taxes that make sense, people are willing (laughs) to pay for them. Yeah, but Bostonians also don't want them in Boston. So this is great. (laughs) How's this going to work? Yeah, so Boston's town council offered to quarter the troops at... Castle Island in Boston Harbor. Huzzah! That is our beer. In fact, Kristen, I think we should drink every time I say Castle Island for the rest of this episode. (laughs) Done. Drinking games. I'm (laughs) in. Okay, all of you at home, do this. If you're in your car, don't do this (laughs) along with us. Okay, so the genius of this offer to quarter the troops at Castle Island. Oh, Drink, you were slow (laughs) on that. (laughs) Was that it complied with the obligations to quarter soldiers. The council insisted that they were not going to construct any new barracks or house soldiers elsewhere until the barracks on Castle Island Mm -hmm. were first filled. 
just going to leave my beer up here? <laughs> I know. I keep it in your hand because Castle Island <laughs> was technically a part of Boston. So the council was technically providing shelter in the town. Genius. This is hilarious. I know. So, but those barracks were on an island three miles from the coast of Boston, which defeats the entire purpose <laughs> of occupying Boston. I mean, Castle Island is literally an island. I will drink, but this is so funny and honestly ingenious because today Castle Island is still there and there's a fort on it, um, but it's connected to Boston. It's no longer an island. Back then, I mean, it, it's literally like out in it's the an island. It's an island. You still have to drink. Sorry. Okay, good. So, because and keep it up because Castle Island is actually so far from Boston that in the midst of the Hancock Liberty Riots from our last episode, this was where Bernard told customs officials to flee to for safety. Do you remember he said, I can't protect you guys. Run along to Castle Island. Drink. Oh, I love it. Now, General Thomas Gage said, at such a distance from the town of Boston, soldiers are essentially going to be useless. So while they sorted this out, Bernard told one regiment they could camp on Boston Common and another could stay in a large building a few yards from Boston Common called the Manufactory House. The Manufactory House was a two-story building, so it was a good place to house soldiers. And besides, only a few squatters actually lived there. In early October 1768, remember the soldiers arrived October 1st, a British officer went to the Manufactory House by order of the governor and requested that the occupants leave. The the residents did not. (laughs) They locked and bolted the doors. The town sheriff, Stephen Greenleaf, and Lieutenant Governor Thomas Hutchinson got involved and demanded that they vacate the premises. One occupant told them that they didn't have the authority to evict them because it had not been properly approved by the general court. A very informed squatter. Get that man a law degree. Harvard's Mm -hmm. around the corner. (laughs) Greenleaf left and returned the next day with soldiers, who forcibly tried to get into the building through the cellar. British soldiers then surrounded the building and didn't allow anyone to come in or out, hoping to starve the residents out of the manufactory house. This is developing into quite a standoff. We're escalating. Exactly. When the residents got hungry enough and needed to leave, the soldiers planned to rush in and take over the building. Now fast forward two days and the squatters had been trapped inside the house and children were crying at the windows for bread. This next part of the story is so amazing. So a nice baker goes to the manufacturing house to deliver bread to these people, except the soldiers guarding the building stopped him from bringing the bread in. And then Bostonians got truly creative. They threw the loaves of bread right over the heads of the soldiers into the open windows. Hashtag Tom Brady. (laughs) It's amazing. (laughs) British soldiers then assaulted some of the participating townspeople, but no one suffered any severe injuries. This standoff actually led to the first blood being shed between Bostonians and Redcoats. Eventually, after several days, the British give up and withdraw their troops from the perimeter of the manufactory house. Like Andrew Oliver's resignation, the Stamp Act repeal, and dropping smuggling charges against Hancock, abandoning the manufactory house was another devastating British compliance. The British are improvising as they go, I get that, but don't they realize the harm they're causing with all of these decisions? (laughs) Obviously not. They're teaching the Bostonians the lesson that if they keep behaving like this, they're eventually going to get what they want. Yes, they are. The soldiers ended up staying, by the way, in abandoned buildings and unused distilleries, camping on Boston Common. 
But just because they weren't staying inside Bostonians' homes didn't mean that the townspeople couldn't feel their presence. It was difficult for many Bostonians to coexist with soldiers. Here's a particularly haunting episode. This is a tough one to hear, actually, but it gives you a sense of how things have changed with the soldiers in Boston. Around 8 in the morning on Monday, October 31st, 1768, townspeople could hear drummers from somewhere near Boston Common. A young man named Private Richard Ames is dressed all in white and standing at the top of Beacon Hill. Many soldiers are positioned behind him, and then they all march down the hill to Boston Common. Ames was then put in front of a firing squad, shot, and killed. His crime was desertion. Yeah, I love that you use the word haunting there and just the visual of him being in all white. This is really sad. But also it says even the British soldiers don't want to be in Boston. Like, why are they? Yeah, yeah. And you can imagine seeing something like this if you were a townsperson to see all of these soldiers and then killing someone right in your public park, how alarming that would be. But it is hard to blame the British soldiers for deserting. Being in Boston was a terrible experience for the soldiers. It's a tiny town. A lot of townspeople don't want them there. General Gage claimed that it was unsafe for an officer or soldier to walk the streets. And British officers reported that they overheard several Bostonians threaten, quote, that they would kill all the officers in the town. This may have been hyperbole, but it's what British soldiers and officers were reporting and feeling. And Bostonians, let's be honest, they don't want the troops around. Right. I totally get that. That makes sense to me, right? But once they're there and, you know, if we don't have these spectacles like what happens to Private Richard Ames, what difference does it make? It's a good question. But if I was our key player, Samuel Adams, I would say I wouldn't be drinking this beer anymore. (laughs) But I would say that going about daily business in Boston is now more dangerous or annoying and difficult because of the soldiers. Samuel Adams... Okay, this is gross, but he claimed that the soldiers were stationed, quote, in our very bowels. <laughs> it's, it's very descriptive. Uh, but his point is that the soldiers are everywhere, and it obviously drives these people nuts. True, I guess it is this peninsula that's two miles long, so having 2,000 redcoats come in and around the area, like, yeah, you'd notice that. Yeah, yeah. so... Bostonians did one of the things they did best, which is they wrote about these soldiers being here in newspapers. On the day of the troops' arrival, until a year and a half later, there was a daily report from Boston called the Journal of the Times. Daily. That was not a common thing at this point, right? Well, no, that's a good point. So several days would be printed. Newspapers were often printed once or twice a week. So you'd get several days, but there's a daily transaction of what's happening in Boston. And the reports detailed every grievance or offense committed by the British. The reports would then be reprinted in New York and Philadelphia, also with an eye to England, so that everyone knew (laughs) about the daily violations of Bostonians' liberties. Love it. Having New York and Philadelphia also on your side definitely helps Boston as well. Now, the Journal of the Times is a heavily biased source, obviously, but it's not necessarily unreliable because newspapers corroborate many of their stories. So now I want to tell you some of the annoyances that the Journal of the Times reported. British soldiers set up a watch on the neck of Boston, which you remember from episode one when we talked about the layout of Boston. The neck is the only land route in and out of Boston. So now you have to be stopped by these British soldiers and the the soldiers would poke their head into your carriages and ask what your business was. And we remember that they like their privacy, like they don't want them in their homes and they don't want them in their carriages. Exactly, get out. There was also multiple severe whippings that took place on Boston Common, which would be terrible to witness. 
Mm. Yeah, Richard Ames wasn't the only public punishment, apparently. Yeah. We've got whippings and the common, again, you know, very common space where common a lot of people space. are hanging out. So we would see these whippings. Yeah, Ooh. it'd be unsettling. The soldiers also offended Bostonians' Puritan sense of piety because the soldiers were too loud on the Sabbath, Sunday, their holy day. Townspeople complained that, quote, serious people at public worship were greatly disturbed with drums beating and fifes playing. <laughs> so basically, soldiers are making a whole lot of noise on Sunday. Yeah. Bostonians even asked the officers to stop the noise, especially near the churches. But it continued. You'll love this one, Kristen. Soldiers even orchestrated a horse race on Boston Common on a Sunday in 1769. What? On a Sunday? Yeah. <laughs> Let's get loud on Sunday. This is another one. I mean, this one, you can just hear how Bostonians were being trolled by soldiers. <laughs> so one account says, this is a quote here. Last Lord's Day, some assemblies in this town were greatly disturbed during divine service by the rattling of drums and play of the fifes. A party of soldiers with those noisy instruments passed one of those assemblies twice in the space of half an hour, end quote. Twice? Who do they think they are? They're being mean. And they're doing this on purpose. They're literally just parading back and forth these churches while the people are worshiping. It's trolling at its finest. The soldiers also drank too much alcohol. Castle Island, Kristen. <laughs> that was just a sneaky way to drink another sip. Mm. I'm really liking this beer as we keep going, though, it's, by the way. It's super good. Ooh. This is really wild. Soldiers received a ration of alcohol from the army. Sign me up. <laughs> often beer or rum, and then they'd probably drink more at the many local taverns in Boston. The Journal of the Times said, quote, the drunkenness, debaucheries, and other extravagancies which prevail by means of the troops being quartered in the midst of a town where distilled spirits are so cheap and plenty. Right. As we mentioned in episode two, Boston was the leading rum producer in the 13 colonies. So Boston had easy access to rum. And as we know, Bostonians love to drink. Yeah. Spirits are cheap and plenty in Boston. No doubt. But it's not just the soldiers who imbibed. The spirits didn't become cheap and plenty when they got there, right? But it makes for a hypocritical and funny complaint. Right. And these are just some of the offenses listed in the journal. But there is good news coming to Boston's rebels. Lord Hillsborough, who's Secretary of State to the Colonies, decided in the spring of 1769 to recall Francis Bernard from his post as governor of Massachusetts. The weasel is gone. Gone. So the soldiers are staying, but Bernard's out. Bernard left Boston on August 1st, 1769, which was a day of celebration in Boston. They just can't help themselves. <laughs> I love it. Uh, the party included an enormous dinner hosted by the Sons of Liberty. They sang songs making fun of Bernard, and one song was written by an up-and-coming rebel who we're going to be talking about in future episodes named Dr. Benjamin Church. But Bostonian rebels shouldn't have been celebrating too early. The next royal governor of Massachusetts is the man Bostonians love to hate, Thomas Hutchinson. Buzzkill! But Kristen, then everything went smoothly for years to come with Hutchinson in charge. Oh, we're drinking tea. <laughs> Where's my British accent? Obviously, I kid. Between Hutchinson and 2,000 troops in Boston, there's going to be a lot more trouble. Tune in to the next episode to hear what happens. 
So we want to thank Castle Island again for providing this very delicious Keeper New England style IPA. If you've been drinking along with us and are enjoying the Keeper as much as we are and you want to check out Castle Island Brewery, the tap room is in Norwood, Massachusetts, which is a suburb of Boston, easy enough to get to. Admittedly not on Castle <laughs> Island, but Castle Island isn't even an island anymore. So. Yeah, and what's on Castle Island today is basically a hot dog stand and a fort. And in closing, I want to read something that I find very sweet on the side of the can. At Castle Island, beer is a reward. For a job done well or the start of a new endeavor, you're holding a delicious liquid pat on the back. Pat yourself on the back, oh, Yes, we made yes, it through one more episode. Have a beer. Yeah, so if you stay tuned to the end of the episode, I'll let you know what we're drinking next. We are at your service. Join Yield Tavern Tours, that's old with an E, the next time you're in Boston. Our company motto is, because beer makes history even better, which obviously helped inform our podcast. The tours are a social and fun way to learn about Boston's revolutionary and drunken past, while also enjoying craft beers and historic taverns. The tours are led by historians, including me and Kristen. If you won't be in Boston anytime soon, you can read the book I wrote, Boston and the American Revolution, A Town Versus an Empire. It's available on Amazon. Our beer for next week will be the Triple Threat from Cambridge Brewing Company. It's another strong one, Brooke. A Belgian-style ale coming in at 10%. Yep. As the tensions escalate in Boston, so does our beer's ABV, apparently. <laughs> our key player next week is a triple threat himself. He's smart, handsome, and brave, but you'll have to tune in to see who he is. So see you next time when beer makes history.